Well, let me welcome you back to the book of Job. Uh, As you know, since Easter, or since the Sunday after Easter, we have been thinking together about this idea of how is it that we keep hope alive when somebody comes up and drills holes in our hope bucket and we begin to encounter difficulty or endure suffering and hope begins to slip away. How is it that we can keep hope alive? And we've been learning some principles to do this from the life of Job recorded in the book of Job. You have your Bibles open to chapter 37. You can stay right there. But I'm going to go back to chapter 1 since it's been a couple of weeks since we were in this series. You know that last week we pulled off just for one week. But let me remind you of what we discovered early on in this message in Job chapter 1 in verse number 8 where you get a clear declaration of the character of Job by the mouth of God himself. It is God's testimony of Job that he is a righteous person. It's chapter 1, verse 8, where God speaking says to Satan, Have you considered my servant Job? That there is none like him in the earth. He is a perfect man. doesn't mean he never sinned, but it means he lives with integrity, with authenticity. He's complete. He's a perfect man. He's an upright man. He fears God and eschews or turns away from evil. Now, this is God's testimony of Job. And let me ask you, if God were to say something about you today or about me, wouldn't we love for it to be this? Wouldn't it be awesome if God could look at us and say, if you considered my servant Jim or my servant Joe or my servant Bill or my servant Mary, there's none like him or her in all the earth. They are righteous. They live with integrity. They live for the Lord. They love the Lord. They turn away from evil. That was God's testimony of Job. And Satan responded to God's testimony of Job by lodging an accusation against God. Now, it was an accusation against Job, but really, as we've learned, it was more so an accusation against God. It's in chapter 1, verse number 9. Satan answered the Lord and said, Does God or does Job fear God? For naught, for nothing, for free. What Satan is saying, as I've told you before, is God, you're not worthy of worship. Of course Job serves you. Look at how you've blessed him. Of course he's devoted to you. You've blessed all that he touches and you've turned everything to gold for him and his family's beautiful and happy and healthy and and he's got this devoted wife and and he's wealthy and you protect him and of course he's devoted to you. But if you didn't do that, he wouldn't serve you because you're not worthy. God, you're not worthy of worship just for who you are. And so God gave Satan liberty to test that theory. And as a result of that, Job began to endure, as you know, unimaginable suffering. Chapter 1, chapter 2, record how he lost his wealth in a day. He lost his 10 children in a day. He lost his health in a day. Not just that he suddenly didn't feel well. He contracted a disease that was so horrible, that so disfigured him that he didn't even look like himself and people pulled away and were appalled, afraid of him because of the boils that covered his body. He lost the devotion of his wife. All of this unimaginable suffering came into Job's life. Now remember that all of the suffering that Job endured, of all of it, nothing was random. But rather, the suffering of Job was accomplishing Two very important 
purposes. And we've discovered what these are. The first one was to demonstrate the worthiness of God. It was simply to answer Satan's question, does Job serve you for nothing or are you worthy to be worshipped if you don't give him all those things? The suffering that Job endured demonstrated that God was in fact worthy and it also tested the motives of Job's devotion. Did Job understand that God is worthy to be worshipped no matter what happens in my life? Or was there a place at which Job would quit? Do you remember I asked it this way? Did Job have a price? Was there a degree of loss that if he endured this much loss, he would say, I'm done, man. I will no longer trust in the Lord. Obviously, God is not a good God. Obviously, God doesn't love me. I'm done serving him. Did Job have a price? And he didn't. In fact, you remember that we looked at Chapter 13, verse 15, where Job said, though he slay me, I'll trust in him. I am going to worship and trust in the Lord. Now, loved ones, in the same way, no suffering in my life or yours is random, ever. Any hardships or sufferings that we endure, any deep valleys of despair that we walk through, any sicknesses, any losses to the grave, any hardships that we have are always intended to demonstrate the worthiness of God and to strengthen and test and refine the fi- uh, our faith in that fire of hardship. To demonstrate that we understand that we have no price. We will serve God regardless of what happens. Well, a couple of weeks ago, we learned or we met Job's three friends. Do you remember their names? Let's call them out. If you remember them, Eliphaz, Bildad, and do you remember? Zophar. Some of you got it. Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar. Job's three friends. Thank God for friends, right? And these three friends really in their initial motives were right on. In fact, when you look at these three friends coming to see Job, they're a, they're a wonderful example to us in the beginning. Not ultimately, but in the beginning they are. In fact, when they first arrive, we, we see the beauty. Remember we talked about this, the beauty of friendship when we're suffering. The, the beauty of having people who will come and walk through hard times with us. Some of you have been through some difficulties, and right now, if you were to be asked, tell me the person who helped you through that, you could name them like that. You'd just come up with their name just instantly. They walked through the deep valley with you. They were your faithful friend during that time, and you thank God for them. And some of you have been that for others as well. You also see in these three friends, we learned about it two weeks ago, the beauty or the power of being present in someone's suffering without speaking. This was what the Bible described in chapter number 2, verses 12 and 13, when they show up and they just sit with Job. They don't talk. They don't give answers. They don't give explanations. They just sit silently for seven days. So all that's beautiful. That's good. That's instructive for us. However, as we learned a couple of weeks ago, and as most of you know, the assumptions that Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar made about why Job was suffering were so off base, they were so incorrect, that when they opened their mouth and they began to speak to him about his suffering, they got off track instantly and they ended up doing more harm to Job than helping Job. They were definitely, these three men, Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar, they were definitely the wrong voices to listen to. In fact, you have your, 
your finger, I think, in, in uh, chapter 37. Go over to chapter number 42. Listen to God's rebuke. When you come down near the end of the book, God rebukes Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar for their um, bad advice to Job. Verse number seven, it was so that after the Lord had spoken these words unto Job, that the Lord said unto Eliphaz the Temanite, my wrath is kindled against you and your two friends, for you have not spoken the thing, spoken of me, the thing that is right. Now if you wonder, were these guys off base? There's your answer. God says they were so far off base. And in all of the accusations that they made against Job, God confirms it. They were incorrect. Their voices were the wrong voices. Now, now here's the life lesson. That if we're going to keep hope alive in the suffering, we, we have to learn which voices to listen to. Because a lot of people are going to be speaking. And there are some people we ought to just tune out, not listen to their advice at all. But there are some right voices. And so these three were the wrong voices. Today, we're going to meet the man, the fourth voice that speaks into Job's suffering. And we're going to meet the man, Elihu. And Elihu is going to be the right voice. Now, there's a fifth voice that speaks to Job as well. We'll, begin, we'll see that next week. That's the voice of God. You don't want to miss the voice of God. But before we hear the voice of God, we're going to hear the voice of Elihu, and you meet Elihu in chapter number 32. So we're going to be in 37 in a second, but go back with me to chapter number 32, and let me introduce you to Elihu. You know, it's interesting that so many people, when they think about what they know about the book of Job, they know a lot generally about the book. They even know that Job had three friends who didn't do a great job or turned out to be great friends after all. But a lot of people don't know about Elihu. They, probably some of you are like, Elihu? I never heard of Elihu. There's an Elihu in the book of Job? I didn't know that. Do you know why most people don't know about Elihu? It's because they start in chapter 3 reading what the three friends are saying, and they get so frustrated, they never get to chapter number 32. <laughs> they stop reading before they get to the right voice of chapter number 32, which is the voice of, of Elihu. In fact... Uh, chapter 32 gives us some really important information. Let me just run through these quickly. I think they're important. Uh, it's kind of some points of information to introduce you to Elihu. First of all, look at verse 2. Chapter 32, verse number 2, tells us that, that Elihu is the son of Barak El, the Buzite, who is of the kindred of Ram. That's, this is interesting. That may not mean you know, his dad's name was Barak El. Uh, he was Buzite, and uh, he was descended from Ram. Said, I don't, why does that really matter to me? Well, it, that particular information not, may not be super important to us, but here's what is worthy of note. That we learn more in that one verse about Elihu than we learn in many chapters about Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar. The only things we're told about those three, Eliphaz is the Temanite, uh, Bildad is the Shuite, and uh, Zophar is the Namathite. That's it. Just those, those clans from which they came. But in one verse, it tells us the father's name of Elihu. It tells us the clan, and it tells us where he descended from. You may remember that I mentioned to you in the beginning of this series that we don't really know for sure when Job lived. But we think that maybe Job lived around the time of the patriarchs, around the time of Abraham, or, or shortly after uh, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. This information about Elihu is one of the hints 
that points us in that direction. Anyway, this is who he is, the son of Barakel, the Buzite, and uh, of the uh, descended from Ram. The second thing that this passage tells us about Elihu is that he was a young man. Look at it, chapter 32, verse number 4. It says, now Elihu had waited until Job had spoken because they, Job and his three friends, were older or elder than he. When Elihu saw that there was no answer in the mouth of these three men, then his wrath was kindled. And Elihu, the son of Barakel, the Buzite, answered and said, I am young and you are very old. It's not a very kind thing to say. But it demonstrates why he waited. He waited for them to finish because they were all older than him. And out of respect, he let them speak first. I am young and you are very old. So Elihu was a young man, but he speaks with a wisdom that is beyond his age. Can I just say, thank God for young people. Amen? I mean, sometimes young people, you know, they take a, a lot of hard knocks for, you know, being impetuous and a lot of zeal, but not a lot of wisdom. Hey, thank God for the young people who have a fire for Jesus. God uses young people in an amazing way. If you study the revivals throughout Europe and America over, the, over history, you'll find that a number of them began with a revival beginning, first of all, in the hearts of the young people, and then it spread to the older people in their churches and their communities. I thank God for young people. Paul writes in 1 Timothy 4, let no man despise you or look down on you for your youth, but be thou an example of the believers in word and conversation, in charity and faith and uh, in spirit and in purity. God uses young people. Can I just stop and say, I'm so grateful for all of the young people on the staff at Brookstone Church. We've got some young guys and girls on our church. I love all of them. Yeah, you ought to clap for them. Praise the Lord for those guys. Now they're young, they're weird, but I love them. <laughs> Friend of mine loves to say, if you're gonna reach the next generation, you gotta hire some weird people. I'm not saying that's what we're doing. But we got a lot of young people. And they bring a freshness and a, and a, and a, a, a view of things that us older people don't see. And, and, uh, and it's causing our congregation to grow younger instead of grow older. And it's just a beautiful thing to watch. Thank God for them. Elihu's young. Third thing is that Elihu is angry. He's rightfully angry. It's a righteous indignation, a righteous anger. But the Bible says it over and over. Look at verse number two. Then was, the, then was kindled the wrath of Elihu. Uh, and then verse number two, at the end of the verse says, uh, against Job was his wrath kindled because Job justified himself rather than God. Verse three, against his three friends was his wrath kindled. Verse five when Elihu saw that there was no answer in the mouth of these three men, then was his wrath kindled four times. Four times in as many verses. It says there was this fire burning in him. It's like there was a fire stirring in him. He was getting more and more and more angry as he sat for days, no doubt, and listened to this back and forth between Job and his friends. They were accusing Job without cause. He was justifying himself, and, and Elihu was sitting angrily listening to all this. And so when he speaks, he speaks out of anger. Now, doesn't speak unrighteously, but anger is fiery. Indignation is, is driving what he is saying. Number four, Elihu delivered four sermons or four speeches. Look at verse number 10. He says in verse 10, Therefore I said, hearken to me 
I will show you my opinion. And he did. (laughs) He showed them his opinion of all of this. And beginning in chapter number 32, 32, 33, 34, 35, 36, 37, six chapters, he delivers four lengthy sermons. Now you should be grateful. You only have to endure one lengthy sermon on a Sunday morning. He delivered four lengthy messages. And he delivered to them what God had put on his heart. In fact, verses 6 through 10 tell us that he's confident in his message. Verse 6, 7, 8, we read where he said, you're older, so I waited. But listen to what he says in verse number 9. Great men are not always wise. Older men don't always get it right. Verse 10, he said, therefore hearken unto me, and I will give you my opinion. Look at verse number 8. There is a spirit in man, and the inspiration of the Almighty gives a man understanding. I can tell you, as a guy who God has called to do what God has called me to do, as a guy who's purpose for drawing breath is to stand in front of God's people and open the word and speak for God. I love that verse. That's a preacher's verse. He says, there is a spirit in man and God will put his word in a man to deliver to the people. And he says, uh, Elihu says, I am confident I am speaking for God. And then the final thing that we learn in this passage, well, it's actually in the next chapter, chapter 33, where you see Elihu or Elihu demonstrating humility. I love verse 6, chapter 33, verse 6 and 7. Behold, I am, he says to Job, Behold, I am according to thy wish in God's stead. I also am formed out of the clay. Behold, my terror shall not make thee afraid, neither shall my hand be heavy upon thee. There's humility in this. What he says to Job as he begins to deliver these these four sermons that uh, Job is going to listen to, he says, Job, listen, I'm just like you, man. You and I both come from the clay. God has cut us out of a piece of clay. I'm not going to come down on you, but I do want to speak truth to you. Now listen, if y'all are listening, shout amen. That's one of the ways you can tell the right voice to listen to. It's not the voice that speaks on high in a condescending tone telling you everything you've done wrong, but it's the voice that comes alongside you and says, you know what, we're in this together. And I don't have it all together either, and I'm not the final authority, but, but I just want you to know God's shared some things with me that I want to share with you. And that kind of humble voice is the voice that can make a difference. And so, beginning in chapter 32, all the way through chapter 37, Elihu speaks. And you know what's interesting? Job never replies with a single word to Elihu. Not a word. Which is amazing. Because he spent 15 chapters arguing with Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar. Every time they would say something, he would reply with a rebuttal against what they had said. But his silence at the preaching of Elihu indicates his understanding that he's hearing truth. You know, preachers love it when people shout amen. But I've learned that usually the best work is going on not when people are shouting amen, but when they're just sitting really quiet and listening. They tell me that sheep are quiet when they eat. And very often when God is delivering truth to us, when we're hearing it and we're just listening, God is driving something home. Not only did Elihu not, uh, or Job didn't reply to Elihu, but God didn't condemn a single word that Elihu said, not one. Now compare that to chapter 42, verse 7, where he says to Eliphaz, you guys are totally wrong. 
Elihu finishes speaking and God is like, amen. That's right. In fact, God so approved of what Elihu said, chapter 38, God just picks up the message and keeps going. Chapter 38, God comes along and speaks to Job as well. In fact, Job has, or, uh, Elihu has been called the forerunner of Jehovah. God just followed his message. He's been called the John the Baptist of the Old Testament. Because in the same way that John the Baptist came preaching and then Jesus came preaching, Elihu came preaching and then God came preaching in chapter 38. We're going to get into the voice of God next week in chapter 38. But today, I want to show you the message of Elihu in chapter number 37. So, are you finally there? We've been in chapter 1, chapter 42, chapter 32, chapter 33. Now let's go to chapter 37. This is our text. Let me read it to you beginning in verse 1. Job 37.1 says, Elihu is speaking to Job. He says, at this, my heart trembles, Job. It is moved out of his place. Hear attentively the noise of his voice and the sound that goes out of his mouth. He directs it under the whole of heaven and his lightning under the ends of the earth. After it, that is after the lightning, a voice roars and God thunders with the voice of his excellency. And he will not stop the lightning when his voice is heard. God thunders marvelously with his voice. Great things he does, which we cannot comprehend. For he says to the snow, be thou on the earth. Likewise to the gentle rain and to the heavier, the great rain, the rain of his strength. He stops the work of men, seals up the hand of every man, so that all men might know his work. The beasts go into their dens and remain in their places. Out of the south comes the whirlwind and the cold out of the north. By the breath of God, the frost is given. And by the breath of the, and the breadth of the waters is straightened, or the rivers are frozen, is what that means. Also, by watering, he wearies or makes heavy the thick clouds, and he scatters the bright clouds. And it is turned round by his counsels that they may do whatsoever he commands, commands them upon the face of the whole of the world in the earth. He causes, if you have a pen in your hand, would you circle those two words? He causes. He causes it to come, whether it's for correction or for his land or for mercy. Hearken unto this, O Job, stand still and consider the wondrous works of God. Skip to verse 23, if you will. Verse 23 and 24 says, Regarding the Almighty or touching the Almighty, we cannot find him out. He is excellent in power and in judgment and in justice, and he will not afflict. Men do therefore, or men ought to therefore fear him. For he is no respecter of anyone that is wise in his own heart. Now Elihu's message, and remember it begins in chapter 32 and it ends in chapter 37. We've simply picked up on it in the last chapter of his discourse. But in these words of Elihu, he gives Job advice. Remember, as a co-journeyman, someone who's alongside Job, cut from the same clay, he says to him, let me give you some advice. And his words are instructive to Job and they're helpful to us as well. I want you to write this down. What Elihu is advising Job in is to 
remember that when we suffer, we are not to make our suffering. He says, Job, don't make your suffering about you. Job, don't make your suffering about you. Look at verses number 13 and 14. He talks about all the circumstances that come to pass, all the things that God is doing in the world. And he says in verse number 13, he causes this to come. He causes these things to happen, and he does it for correction. He does it for the sake of the land. He does it because he's giving mercy. But in any case, God is doing what he is doing. And at the end of the day, as God is doing what he is doing upon the face of the whole world, sometimes God's doings are going to lead us into a pit of despair. They're going to lead us through the valley of hardship. But Elihu says, Job, God is working in the world. It's not all about you. Don't make it about you. I've seen something beautiful in the saints of God over the years who suffer. And that is that most saints who suffer see their suffering differently than people who see suffering from the outside, who aren't in the middle of it. And most of the people who know the Lord, who walk through suffering, understand that God is at work in a bigger way. They hope in Christ And they recognize that while they are enduring suffering and hardship, that they know that God is working something for his glory in them and around them and even through their pain. And most saints who suffer understand this enough that they don't make their suffering all about themselves. They understand what Paul wrote, 2 Corinthians 4, when he wrote about the fact that that in this life we're always bearing about in the body the dying of the Lord Jesus and, and we're persecuted and we're cast down and, and we, we endure hardships. The, the glorious truth that we have in Christ is in an earthen vessel and sometimes our earthen vessels are wounded and cracked and broken but they understand, Paul said, that there is a greater glory that God is working through our suffering. They have the heart, the attitude that Paul had 2 Corinthians chapter number 12. You know, Paul had a physical problem. He had some sort of physical ailment and he begged God to take it away. Called it his thorn in the flesh. Three times, God, would you take it away? And God said, no. Lord, will you take away my suffering? Will you ease my heartache? No. Why not? And God's answer was because in your weakness, you're made strong. In your weakness, my glory is revealed. When you are weak, you are strong in me. And so Paul said, well, if that's the case, if you're at work in greater ways beyond my suffering, then I will glory in my suffering that the glory of Christ might be magnified. See, people who, people who were enduring suffering understand that very often. It's not all about me. Pe- people who are suffering persecution who would love to not suffer persecution. Do you think that there are people suffering around the world today for Christ? Suffering persecution unlike anything we'll ever know. Losing their homes, losing their families, losing their, their, their freedom, even being martyred and killed for their faith in Christ. Could Jesus stop that? Of course he could. Could God intervene on their behalf so they don't have to suffer that abuse in that prison cell for Christ? Sure. But do you know what they understand? 
They, they understand what Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego understood. That God uses the persecution for his own glory. You remember Daniel chapter 3, don't you? When those three Hebrew boys wouldn't bow down to Nebuchadnezzar's idol. He said, when the music sounds, you better bow down or I'm going to throw you into the burning fiery furnace. And they said, well, you can do what you want to do. But here's what you need to know. Our God is going to deliver us. And whether he delivers us out of the fire or he delivers us into heaven through death, we are not going to bow down to you because God's working something greater for his glory. Do you understand? It's this attitude. It's this understanding of suffering that says God is working in me, through me, and around me. It's not all about me. They understand what the psalmist understood when he was suffering in Psalm 42. And he said, I'm going to hope in God. He said to his soul, why are you cast down on my soul? Hope thou in God. So in verses 13 and 14, Elihu says to Job, Elihu, uh, Job, look, God's at work, man. God is causing all things. If y'all are listening, shout Amen. Can I press in a little bit, maybe, maybe make you a little uncomfortable, test your theology just a little bit? Do you know that God is ultimately the cause of all things? He superintends over all things. We live in a broken world, and in a broken world, bad things happen, and we recognize that God is the sovereign over this world, and so ultimately, he is the, he is the cause of all things for his glory. When bad things happen, we like to use terminology that says, well, God didn't cause that, but God allowed that. God is superintending. He is sovereign. I circled in my Bible, he causes, verse 13. He causes all things to happen. He causes it to come. And sometimes he causes things for correction. He needs to write something. Sometimes he causes things for his land, for the sake of the land. Sometimes he causes things because he's revealing mercy whether we understand it or not. But he is doing all of these things. And we must be people, verse 14, who will see his work and stand still and let him work. Elihu's advice to Job is don't make your suffering about you. God is at work in the world. The second bit of advice that Elihu gives to Job is that he wanted Job to remember that God doesn't answer to us. He doesn't. He doesn't answer to us. Now, sometimes he answers our questions, and sometimes he doesn't. But whether he answers them or not, he doesn't answer to us. He is not accountable to us. Look at what Elihu says in verses number 23 and 24. Regarding the Almighty, we cannot find him out. It means he's beyond our understanding. His ways are so far above our ways. He's doing things that we don't understand. And sometimes that's, that doing means that we are going to endure some hardship. We can't understand it always. But even though we can't understand it, verse 23 says, he is excellent. There is no greater than him in power, in righteousness, and in justice. Here's what that means. It means that no matter what's happening in your life or in mine, are you listening? God is right every time. And he says at the end of that verse, he will not, verse 23 at the end, he will not afflict. It means he will not oppress or be evil. He will not make a mistake. He is righteous. He is powerful. He is just. He is always right, and he will never make 
a mistake. So verse 24 says this. So Job, just reverence him. And don't be wise in your own heart. And don't think that you know better than God. Now it's at this point that Elihu demonstrates wisdom that goes far beyond Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar. Because those three friends of Job believed that Job had sinned and his sin was the cause of his suffering. Elihu knew better. But Elihu realized that Job had sinned not to cause his suffering, but Job's sin, write this down, was in response to his suffering. Does the book of Job record that Job got it wrong on some counts, that he sinned in some ways? Yeah. Yeah. Did did God have to confront Job and correct his responses and his thinking? Certainly. Certainly. We'll see it next week. But was Job's sin, did he sin to cause his suffering? No. His sin was in response to his suffering. And this is usually where we miss it. This is usually where we sin. In response to our suffering. Because listen, for uh, what, 28, 29 chapters, Job stood toe-to-toe with God and demanded that God give him answers. That God explain himself to him. You ever done that? You ever entered into hardship and your response has been, what? what's up? What are you doing? Why are you, why are you allowing this? Obviously you don't love me like I thought you did. We sometimes respond to God like this. And what Elihu says to Job is, Job, what I want you to do is to realize that whatever's happening is God is right. Whatever's happening, God is good. And whatever's happening, God is not making a mistake. And so your heart should not be one prideful, conceited in your own heart that says, I know better than you. But rather, verse 24, it would be a heart to revere, to reverence him. Let me show you this just quickly. Turn over to Job chapter number 10. Listen to the questioning that Job demands of God. Job chapter 10, verse 3. Job speaking to God says, Is it good unto thee that you would oppress and that you should despise the work of your hands while you shine upon the counsel of the wicked? Can I translate it? Job says, Hey, hey, hey. What's up? This is all, you're oppressing me, but look at the wicked people over here. They're fine. Look at the next question. Look at verse number eight. Your hands have made me. You fashioned me together round about, yet you're destroying me. Do you remember I, beseech, remember I beseech thee that you made me as the clay, and will you now grind me into dust again? This is Job's questioning of God. Go to chapter 30, on your way back to chapter 37. Stop in chapter 30. Look at Job chapter 30, verses 25 and 26. Verse 25, did I not weep for him that was in trouble? Was not my soul grieved for the poor? Hey God, why is this going on? I've been good, right? I've, had, I've been compassionate. I've, I've been kind to the underprivileged. Did I not do those things? But when I looked for good, evil came to me. And when I waited for light, darkness came to me. 
What's going on? And so Elihu comes along, and here's what he says. He says, hey, Job. Let me see him getting down on the level. Hey, Job, listen, let me tell you something. I know you're hurting, man. But God doesn't answer to you. Can I look at some of y'all? I love you. And I know life is hard. And I know that some of you are enduring grief and heartache and pain and hardships that are unspeakable. I know it. But know this, God is not wrong. He's not mean. He's always right. And while he might give you the reason why, he's not obligated to, and he doesn't answer to you. So when that pain would cause you to stand up and go, hey God, what about? Step back and consider him and let it bow your head low. This is what Elihu says to Job. Back in chapter 37 and verse number 24, he says, so Job, just fear him. Don't demand of him. Change your posture, just reverence him. He's working something. He's got a plan. Heaven is real. Press on and know that God is good. He knew that if Job would change his heart, Toward God, it would change his posture toward God, and he would go from being an impatient and embittered man to being a man full of humility and trembling. In fact, that's chapter 37, verse 1, when Elihu said, Job, my heart trembles. When I think of the power of God, my heart trembles. And so that's the third and final point of advice from Elihu to Job it is that, Job, you should humble yourself before the Lord. For all those 27 chapters, Job was not very humble. He was righteous in his own eyes, justified himself, stood up to God. And finally, Elihu says to him, Job, you need to humble yourself before the Lord. Tremble before him. He is the God, by the way, who sends the lightning and the thunder. He he is the God, by the way, who controls weather patterns. He is the God who brings the warm wind from the south and the cold wind from the north who freezes the rivers in the wintertime. He he is the God that when a man is out working in his field, God will just send a big rain and that guy will have to go in and stop his work because God's on the move. He is the God that will cause the bears to go into their dens when he's sending that strong rain. He is the God who moves the heavens. And if that's who he is, then humble yourself before him. Elihu stops speaking at the end of chapter number 37. And as I mentioned, God just steps in and continues this this thought. We'll see it next week, but here's how it begins. Having been confronted by Elihu, God then steps in and says to Job, all right, big boy, let's talk. You want to argue with me? You want to question me? Stand up. Fit yourself like a man. And the first question out of God's mouth is, where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth? Conversation over. (laughs) Where, Where were you? I'm in control of this thing. You're not. And you're going to see, we'll see it next week. I'm I'm, I'm edging, I'm itching to preach it to you. But I don't have time. You'll see it next week where this preaching of Elihu and this confrontation of God, uh, of Job by God, brings Job 
to his knees and puts him in the right posture before God. So let's hear the voice of Elihu, right? When we're suffering, you don't know it all. God does. You may not understand it, but he doesn't owe you answers. Just reverence him and trust him. Now, by the way, some of you have never met Jesus as your Savior. And I want to tell you that in a world filled with suffering and ultimately lostness, which will take us to eternal death, God is good and he has entered in to be our Savior and to rescue us from that. I can't tell you how many times people have said to me, all this suffering in the world, if God was good, how could all that suffering happen? I can't believe in a God who allows such suffering in the world. Well, do you know you may not understand it all, but here's what we know, that God has moved into this broken world, and here's the good news, he has plunged in to offer us hope in the brokenness of our sin in this world. And that hope came in the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And Christ died and rose for you. And if you've never trusted in Christ as your Savior, I want you to, I want you to trust in him today. Make certain that your sins are forgiven and that heaven is your home.